You're listening to Stories from Montreal, a podcast to highlight the voices and work of Concordia University's undergraduate sociology and anthropology department. All of our guests have been featured authors in our academic journal of the same name, Stories from Montreal. I'm your host, Marie Figueroa, and today I'll be chatting with Félix Bonvie about his paper, Queering Virtual Worlds, Identity Performance in Virtual World Video Games. Félix graduated from Concordia with a degree in Communication Studies and Anthropology. He is a videographer, photographer, and writer who specializes in the intersection of art and culture studies. Hey Félix, how are you doing? Hi Marie, I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. You know, I'd never actually given much thought to video games in my mind as being more than like a fun activity to veg out to until I took a class um, video games as literature course with Cody Walker uh, last winter. And that actually allowed me to explore the significance of these games as forms of media and more importantly, like the social functions that they have and embody. Um, So MMOG stands for Massive Multiplayer Online Games, right? That's right. It's something that we'll be referring to a bit in our chat. Would you be able to explain a bit more about what that means in the context of your research? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, massive multiplayer online games are basically giant virtual worlds where you're you're playing a game connected with other people who are real and they're playing from their, their computers. And most of the ones that you see are themed like World of Warcraft, a lot of medieval themes, but um, Second Life, which is the focus of my research, is pretty ordinary in comparison. It doesn't, it doesn't really try to do much more than just be a virtual world. And that's kind of what people love about it. Great. And when they're playing these games, they're using avatars. And in your paper, you mentioned that that could be understood as a computer-generated body, which I thought was such an interesting term. But the focus of your paper is more on queer uh, players. So how do LGBTQ players then interact differently with games like Second Life? Right. Well, when you're you're queer, you don't get to follow a script like everyone else does. You realize that there's only one recognized way of doing things, and it probably doesn't apply to you. So eventually, you start seeking out things and other meanings that do. Right. And I I think that Second Life is that for a lot of people, especially older communities. Um, Older communities who feel maybe even more isolated by their generation's views on queer and trans people. So I'd say for many, it's a way to reclaim and live experiences that you don't get from the outside world. And I think that when you get to be yourself, it fulfills one of your most important needs as a person. this seems to be the case for virtual worlds as well. Right. Um, so critics and others that are perhaps not as well versed in queer theory have attempted to explain away trans, queer, and gender nonconforming players playing as their ideal identity as like pure escapism or identity tourism, or even this is in heavy air quotes, virtual cross-dressing. Are you able to debunk these like unnuanced understandings of the ways that these players are actually using their avatars to play? 
Right. Um, I, I think that these people have a point in certain respects. Like a lot of people do play video games to escape or it, it is really fun to, to do silly stuff in these games and use avatars that don't look like you at all. But when you talk about trans people's avatars, it's not the same thing. It's more than identity tourism and it's more than escapism because what these people are expressing is already present inside of them. And so there's a real authentic connection that these people feel with their avatars um, because it allows them to perform the identity they feel inside. And it might not always correspond to their appearance. You'll have some users who don't pass as cisgender in real life and they could choose an avatar that does, but this isn't always the case. And it's not like everyone's experience is the same. It's funny we didn't talk about Judith Butler, but that's not a bad thing because um, <laughs> she actually argues that gender isn't based on some inner truth or something that you feel inside, but rather something that you learn and mm -hmm. that, that exists. And so I was only really using it to say how restrictive these binaries are on the ways that we behave um, and to say that, you know, gender isn't always something that is based on appearance, but how it's performed. And that's, that's really why I talked about Butler in this paper. Right, right. And like in kind of contrast to the escapism thing or the, what was the identity? Was it the virtual cross-dressing point? Yeah, where it was like an, an aesthetic. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. Would you be able to explain like the, I mean, the gameplay that exists on Second Life for, I mean, for queer and non-queer players? Yeah. Well, it's basically like a virtual world and you can do whatever you want. So you can, you can have a job, um, you can earn money inside the game. You can even convert that money to like real US dollars, I'm pretty sure, or whatever currency uh, you use. But what, I have been, what I've been looking at in my research is how queer people use these spaces to sort of fill in the gaps that they experience in their own lives. So you see a lot of people forming communities, um, receiving support and simply engaging in the game in a way that they would engage with the world as, as their ideal selves. Yeah. So could you speak to some of the social factors that would like necessitate gamers who play Second Life um, for them to create like a virtual safe space? Like why would they need to have this other kind of reality. Right, well, you know, as humans, we need community. We need to feel supported and understood as, as who we are. And this is especially the case with older generations. They don't always have that freedom of expression um, that younger generations do. And it's a way to, it's a way to get those things in an alternative way. And it, it might not be ideal for everyone, but um, at the end of the day, I think people just find it easier and less of a hassle to, to, to explore this inside of a game where it's actually working for them than, than in real life where they might not be um, living as their authentic self. So I think it comes down to like the needs that we all have as humans and the fact that Certain people live realities that are much more complex and simply walking out the door and being who they are isn't always as much of an option. Yeah, of course. Um, you mentioned that there's a 
big community element to this game. How is that generated? Is that like something that's built into the game? Or is that something that I know that with a lot of games that users can like uh, have a very real effect on like the actual gameplay de deciding on like what they do. Right. Well, it seems like people are using the game in kind of creative ways. Um, the model of a of a online virtual lounge it seems kind of outdated, but really people are just using it and creating their own spaces to build communities. And um, I, I find it to be a form of resilience, especially for these older generations who don't have the same resources and don't have the same uh, levels of support that, that younger people do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and the game, it came out in 2003, but it's still being updated today. And every time I look, I'm, I'm kind of surprised to see that there's still updates happening, but it happens because the game is so important to the people who use it. So the lounges, I would say, are maybe not the, the main focus of the gameplay, but rather something that people have caught on to. Okay. So yeah, okay. So like secondary functions that are still very much very important to the gameplay. That's interesting. You mentioned that there was a bunch of new, well, like every time you look, there's like a new kind of function or new update. And I imagine that part of that is like in the aesthetics of it. So like probably like how you can customize your character. If we're going back to the idea of like the computer generated body, their avatar, if one could like make the avatar look more like themselves or more like their idealized self, right. can these virtual realities end up becoming more real to these players than, than real life, real life itself, I guess? Well, video games, just like books and films and other media are a form of self-identification. Only with video games, you can decide exactly how you're represented and, and then you get to go interact with the world through this, through this appearance. And what I found is that this is really significant for certain people. Um, it, shows, it shows how important it is to feel like your authentic self, even in day-to-day -day situations. And that people would rather seek out social interactions in a virtual context than a physical one means that these spaces do feel more authentic to some than the outside world. So I think it's about getting what you need and being okay with that coming from an alternative place, which is something that is so true for queer people, you know, since we don't, like I said, get to follow the scripts like everyone else does, we have to imagine how we're going to fill up these parts of our lives. And it doesn't mean that these people don't go outside or don't have social lives, but that maybe they do, and there's still something missing. Yeah, you mentioned that you know, it's really important to, in, in the day-to-day -day lives, to feel like you are represented in your day-to-day -day life, that you are getting, you know, self-actualization. And you mentioned in your paper, and I thought that was really interesting, that, you know, if these MMOGs are, you know, microcosms of real life, that you could get to act out your true self within. I wonder, you know, can queer players gain similar benefits from, like, less realistic games, like GTA, World of Warcraft? Right. It's really interesting. Um, so I wouldn't say exactly the same thing about other MMOGs that are more themed. Um, the name Second Life really says it all because it's, it's trying to give people a microcosm of real life. 
But more importantly, I'd say it's about the ways that people use it and how those ways are pretty comparable to real life. You know, earning money, having jobs, forming communities, forming relationships, et cetera. And um, I'd say that whether physical or virtual, the image that you present to the world, um, that changes the way the world interacts with you. And it's something that people have really taken advantage of in Second Life. For other games like GTA, um, more action games, I've seen that it's also, how do I say this? I've seen that like choosing a character that you identify with inside and playing it even in a game where you're just going and robbing banks um, is really beneficial to the user because it's a sense of affirmation. And the point isn't to present to the world that you are a given gender identity, but rather to explore these, these made up worlds through that identity that you feel within. So yeah, it's a sense of affirmation. Yeah, that's really interesting. That makes me think of, you know, this whole uh, conversation about representation and often that conversation like leads to, you know, films and, and TV shows where people are kind of like almost begging these writers to like have more representation of different people, different like lived experiences. But I think it's really interesting that these these players are not waiting for someone else to write them in as a character. It's like an act of, yeah, like you said, resilience. Yeah, they're not waiting for someone else to do it. They are doing it themselves. Totally. And for a community that's usually seen as being pretty macho and pretty, um, I mean, you hop online and you'll hear all sorts of transphobic, homophobic, racist slurs on online forums and whatnot. So it's really interesting that the reappropriation of these video games by queer people. Absolutely. Well, I have to ask, what piqued your interest in this topic? Um, I knew that something was something interesting was happening, and I wanted to explore it. It was a lot about informing myself of the realities that exist in the queer community beyond my own experience, especially in terms of gender and identity. These are these are subjects that are really important to me. Um, since I grew up without queer role models who I could identify with. And even though I always felt different, I learned that I could really easily fit in when it was convenient for me. So when you imagine the realities of people who don't fit in, whose identities don't fit in so easily, you have to wonder where are these people getting, where are these people finding self-identification? And so my interest was really informed by queer solidarity and the recognition that other people have it a lot harder than I do. And how did you find video games as a way to explore like queer gender expression and solidarity? It's a good question. I, I wouldn't normally choose this. You know, I, I was, I, my major was communications and um, I usually tended to focus on films or TV shows when I would write um, papers about about whatever it was, but I was actually taking a course on video game studies and I had to do a final paper, a really big final paper. And this was really the only way that I could enjoy doing that was, was bringing a little bit of culture studies into it, bringing a little bit of queer theory into it and really making it my own. So I don't think I would have ever written this paper if it weren't for the class, but it, it was a really great opportunity. I, I, I didn't know about 
most of the stuff before. Yeah, it was a really interesting and pleasurable read, like the multidisciplinary approach that you naturally would have from doing a, a double major. Um, and I think it's really important when we're thinking about people and their experiences to kind of like expand our lenses when we're trying to understand why people do what they do or. Thank you. Yeah. So we had talked about this a little bit before, but you mentioned that technology changes so quickly. Like even when you're mentioning how many new updates you're always seeing on this second life, is there anything that you would do differently now or like like to expand on your research, knowing what you know now or seeing what you see now? Huh. That's a really good question. Um, I would definitely take a look at other games that are that exist nowadays, and I would see if I would I would definitely do more research to see like where transgender gamers find the most representation and self-identification. Uh, I, I do think it's becoming a little bit more mainstream nowadays, and that goes also with culture changing itself and attitudes toward queer people becoming more and more accepting. So I think that the second life model maybe resonates with older generations more than younger ones. And if I were to do this again, I would probably still talk about second life to be to be totally honest, because that is such a interesting and sort of hidden uh, community, it seems. Yeah. And I mean, if it's so like resilient in the fact that it's been online for so long and it still has such like a wide user base, it's clearly very important and it isn't like outdated in the fact that like it's still pertinent and relevant in people's lives for a very good reason. Right. But the last update that I saw that was released was they were putting everything on the cloud. So they they destroyed um, how storage works, I guess, is that there's physical rooms with actual pieces of equipment that store data in them. And those had been around in this uh, vault since 2003. And they shredded everything. Um, they shredded everyone's information and put it on the cloud. So it was it seemed like a really big operation. Yeah. Probably something that cost a ton of money. Yeah. So it, it seems like they're trying to stay relevant or at least um, not become obsolete for these people who are, who are still using it. Yeah. I wonder, like, as generally social, like, the social climate towards transgender, nonconforming, and queer people is generally improving, at least the outward attitudes are. Um, I wonder if. Is there is there an international base or is it like purely in North America? I think it's international and I'll say that cautiously, but I don't believe there's anywhere that the game is international. I can't say if it's available in every single country in the world because I know that censorship exists for different reasons in different places, but it's not um, I don't think it's just for North Americans. OK, cool. Yeah, where I was going with that was I wonder if. I mean, this is just a, a question I'm not expecting to have the answer to, but if uh, if we're going to see like a bigger uptick in users or if we have seen a bigger uptick in users, we're in places where, you know, social climates aren't as good for queer people. Right. Well, that could very well be the case. Um, and for places where internet is something that's censored, there's other ways that, that queer people find community. 
And I think it, however they do it, it's always really interesting and always a form of resilience. Absolutely. So I have the last hard hitting question for you. What's next for you as academic or just person? Good question. Well, I, I graduated in December and I honestly feel really eager to start doing things because I was a student for a very long time. Uh, I took my time and I didn't get to develop my skills as much as I would have wanted to in school. So that's really what I'm focusing on now. Um, I've done some contract work for research institutes, making videos. Um, I worked on a documentary last semester. And it's all been really interesting to see that I can develop my skills while also representing my voice and the things I believe in. So I think I'm gonna keep um, taking a lot of photos. I, I, that's really been my, film photography has really been my um, new passion since the pandemic started. And it's been a great way to experiment with my style and explore what works for me. That's cool. Yeah, always exploring different practices is great. And I wish you all the luck with um, any direction that you want to go with. Thank you so much. There's definitely some, there's pressure and there's anxiety mixed in there, of course, because when you live in such a, such an artistic city and such a vibrant city, you know, you compare yourself to the people that you went to school with and the people around you. But I've found that just focusing on what you enjoy creating is so rewarding and brings its own opportunities. Yeah, I mean, creating is a community thing and yeah, it's, it's, it's very easy to get overwhelmed with the amount of talent and yeah, creativity that exists in the city, but it's also so very personal and so rewarding that in the end, it doesn't really matter if anyone sees it because it's for you and then it can be for everyone else too. Exactly. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me today. It was a pleasure. Okay, Marie. Well, thank you so much. Felix's or any of our other featured authors' works, be sure to check out Sasu's Facebook page or Instagram for more information. Stories from Montreal was produced with support from the Concordia Student Union, the Sociology and Anthropology Student Union, and CGLO radio station. It was hosted and edited by me, Marie Figuereo. Our sound design is by Malta Leander, and artwork by Ali Brown. You can catch our show on the CGLO Airways at cglo.com or on their channel, 1690 AM, every Wednesday at 4 p.m. You can also listen to us anywhere you like to stream podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.